Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how did COVID rates get so bad in Northern Ireland? Yeah, because Northern Ireland has some of the worst rates of COVID in Europe. Now, it's hard to be very definitive about these things because a lot of data isn't comparable across jurisdictions. But whatever metrics you look at for the area, it's just not good. Daily figures of over 900, cities with incidence rates of 500 per 100,000. So how did we get here and what the hell is going on? I'm joined from Tyrone by journalist and the journal.ie contributor Dominic McGrath. Dominic, how are you? As I said there, we're uh, at a really bad place in Northern Ireland and a little bit of it has taken us by surprise, particularly in the South. Can you tell us a bit about the situation in Northern Ireland and what it's been like over recent weeks? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that it caught a lot of people in Northern Ireland by surprise. I mean, I think some of the figures um, give an indication of the enormity of the crisis that has struck Northern Ireland in only a few weeks. Um, So if you think about the total number of cases of COVID-19 in Northern Ireland, there are currently just over 17,000. That's since the start of the pandemic. Of those, nearly 5,000 have been recorded in the last seven days alone, which is really extraordinary. So the situation worsened um, really since the start of September when people began to be a little bit alarmed about parts of Belfast and Ballymena. Again, you know, busy urban areas, a bit like Dublin. People would expect the cases would rise there first. This led to some restrictions being introduced um, that basically barred social gatherings in homes between members of different households. At this point, the rest of Northern Ireland, you know, wasn't too bad. Again, cases were rising, but really no worse than other parts of Europe or indeed um, the South. But quickly, another hotspot emerged that has dominated headlines um, in recent weeks. That's the Derry and Straban Council area, quite a large area, which is, of course, on the border with Donegal. Um, as you indicated at the start, the rise in this area has been particularly startling. Um, so there's some, again, figures that I think really show how worrying this is and how quickly the outbreak has sprouted up. So on the 8th of September, the COVID-19 rates per 100,000 over the previous seven days for the Derry and Straban area was 10.6. The same data yesterday was 704.9 cases per 100,000 over the last seven days. So I was even a couple of hundred off in my intro there. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, it's moving so fast, it's very hard to keep track. And the worrying thing is the Derry and Straban area isn't the only place is badly affected. It's not just the Northwest. Uh, Newry, Mourne and Down um, were most recently at 322.4 cases per 100,000 over the last seven days. Mid-Ulster um, is at 250 per 100,000 over the last seven days. Belfast, is, again, is above 300. And the lowest rate is in Mid and East Antrim, which is 57.7 cases per 100,000, according to yesterday's um, data. But even then, that's still quite high. And um, we'd be alarmed if that was a few weeks ago. So I think it's actually getting to the stage where it's quite hard to put these figures into perspective because um, they're actually getting so high. Um, and the question is, I suppose, what's driving it? And the scary thing is, we just don't really know. Um, no one seems to know. Um, at press conference after press conference, I've seen journalists um, here in Northern Ireland asking, you know, the first deputy first minister, asking public health officials, you know, why do we think the North has been so badly hit? And no one appears to know. Do they know, like, 
you know, here we had, you know, discussions about whether it was communion parties or confirmations or house parties or weddings. Is, is there any particular thing that's being looked at and thought that maybe caused a spike or there's a lot of household transmission or pubs were open or whatever? Has there been even any theories around what it could be? So there's been multiple theories like there is, I suppose, everywhere. And yes, yeah, some of those things were raised, um, weddings in particular, you know, there's lots of kind of horror stories about weddings that broke social distancing requirements, you know, they crop up in the media here in the north. In a similar way, people pointed to um, GA matches um, and celebrations there, and in Dungannon in particular, um, people raised that as a concern. Um, the um, first and deputy first minister have said that it has been households um, where the problems have been arising, and um, they've said that it is logical to keep um, the um, pubs and restaurants largely open with some limited restrictions because it's households where the um, virus has been spread. Now, of course, ep epidemiologists would say, well, that raises the question of how is the virus get into households? But this is what the Northern Ireland government has insisted, that households of the area they're most concerned about. But we really don't know. I mean, Arlene Foster was appearing in front of um, a Stormont committee just earlier this week, and she was asked, you know, why is it so bad when Northern Ireland was said to have handled it quite well at the start of the pandemic? And she mentioned seasonal variation. She said, well, we know that the virus is actually worse in the winter. Again, I'm no virologist, but from what I've read, that doesn't really seem to make um, a particularly cogent argument. Um, there's not that much evidence in terms of the seasonal variation in COVID. So, you know, health officials um, and the leadership in Northern Ireland don't seem to have the answers as to why it's so bad. Um, and I think we just don't know yet. Can you remind us what kind of restrictions have been in place over the last few weeks? So when all these outbreaks start happening, um, what kind of things were people in Northern Ireland allowed to do and not allowed to do? Yes, yeah, so it's probably important to say that Northern Ireland doesn't have the same kind of COVID-19 roadmap um, that's been much talked about in the Republic. Um, instead, it's a little bit more reactive. Um, so again, as I indicated earlier, um, the first restrictions on sort of limiting um, the mixing of households were introduced in Belfast and Ballymena. This was then moved and implemented um, on a much wider level um, and it's now in place across Northern Ireland. So not to be any sort of social gatherings between households in Northern Ireland at the moment. Um, in Derry and Brabant, um, the restrictions are a bit more drastic. Um, there, um, pubs and restaurants are not allowed to open um, they must you know, have uh, takeaway or delivery or only have customers seated outdoors. But in the rest of Northern Ireland, pubs are still open. There are some restrictions, again, on how many households can mix in these settings. And there's a curfew of 11 p.m. since the 30th of September. Um, but again, um, the restrictions aren't particularly severe. Um, there was some expectation last night that at a press briefing, um, Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill would announce new measures to combat the virus. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, I imagine. But they didn't announce anything um, perhaps um, too drastic. They beefed up um, punishments for people who breached COVID-19 guidelines, um, raising the level of fines. And they also extended the areas and the settings in which masks and face coverings must be worn. Um, but um, that was it. Um, and it's it's been kind of strange in some respects because the debate in the last few days has been about, one, the potential of um, a circuit breaker, but mostly um, about face coverings and 
the compliance of people when it comes to wearing face coverings. You might have seen um, videos on Twitter of the BBC Northern Ireland presenter Stephen Nolan, um, who was asking people outside a shop why they weren't wearing a mask and really chasing them down. So it's been a bit of a major row here in recent days, but it seems to be not so much about the bigger picture at the moment. So are the compliance race, rates for mask wearing quite low? It's, it's hard to say. Um, anecdotally, people do seem to um, believe they are relatively low or lower than maybe um, lower than perhaps in the south. I mean, from my own experience uh, from moving um, back and forth over the border a little bit um, in the recent months, there does seem to be a higher compliance rate when it comes to mask wearing um, in the south compared to the north. But I think it's one of those things where health officials are concerned about it and it is a very easy thing to do. So I think it's one of the one of the ways that it's uh, it's a very easy option to take in, tr- in terms of trying to make a decision. Yeah, because one of the more difficult things would be the circuit breaker. What's the general feeling in Northern Ireland? Will we see one? Will it have to happen in conjunction with the Republic if it does happen? Uh, and what would the aim of it be? So there are a few different things to unpack there. So the Northern Ireland government, I think, is basically at a crossroads um, where rates are rising um, across Northern Ireland and, you know, action is needed. And this circuit break was raised a few weeks ago as an option, you know, in the UK and for parts of Northern England um, as, a, as a short, sharp lockdown that would try and curb or suppress the rates of the virus. It's now been raised as an option um, in Northern Ireland as well. The problem is that the Northern Ireland executive has been quite explicit in saying that they will not where they cannot introduce a circuit break or any type of lockdown without more financial support from the UK government that would provide support um, um, to workers and to businesses here in North. They're very much adamant that they cannot introduce these drastic, difficult restrictions unless they get extra financial support to make it easier for businesses to close. And this has set up something of a a geopolitical row, I suppose, because it's dragged in uh, the Dublin government. Um, Simon Coveney and Michael Martin have both been on to their counterparts um, in London, asking them to make sure that Northern Ireland gets the support it needs. And I think that's partly because of a fear of a spillover. Um, and again, um, if you remember back to the very start of the pandemic, there were lots of talk of how you know, there was a, a lack of a coordination, a disjunction between the measures being introduced in the Republic and in Northern Ireland. And that's happened again in many ways. We saw that strange system where restrictions were completely different um, in Derry and Strabane when Donegal was facing severe, um, a, a, well, somewhat severe restrictions. So there has been talk of a need for cross-border engagement. Obviously, Sinn Féin has been talking about the need for an all-Ireland strategy, but so public health officials as well. So we're facing a very difficult, complicated patch, and it's unclear um, whether the measures in um, Northern Ireland match those in the South. Yeah, because obviously the virus doesn't know about the Government of Ireland Act 1920. So um, the relationship between the health authorities, how do they communicate at the moment? So depending on who you speak to, um, people will say that the communication between the Irish government and the Northern Ireland executive has been quite good. Some will say it maybe needs to be better. At the very start of the crisis, there was a memorandum signed between um, the Irish government and the Northern Ireland executive promising and committing to 
cooperating, working together. They've said quite famously that you know, the virus knows no borders. Um, they didn't quite put it into the context of the uh, Government of Ireland Act 1920, but they acknowledged that there needed to be some kind of um, cooperation. Now, someone said to me quite an, a, a useful phrase. They said it was more coincidence, I suppose, than uh, cooperation when it came to um, Northern Ireland and the South. The measures have kind of aligned um, organically. And that's probably fair. Um, there was, again, at the start of the crisis, lots of concern about cross-border traffic, uh, about people using Northern Ireland um, to fly into, to, or people flying into Northern Ireland to then come down to Dublin. And that kind of faded away. And eventually there was a kind of, you know, quite easy harmony. Um, people have told me that the chief medical officers um, on both sides of the border are regularly in touch. There is meant to be, um, I've been told, a joint uh, committee hearing in Stormont that will see um, both chief medical officers appearing together to ask questions. Um, but I've, I have noticed, um, I wrote about this a few weeks ago, a, a sort of strange um, reluctance to talk um, between both sides of the, across both sides of the board between politicians. So for instance, it's kind of bizarre that the chief medical officer of um, Northern Ireland never appeared before the Dole's COVID committee. That was never raised as, a, as something that might be useful. So the, the high level talks have been, I think, between officials quite good, but on the ground, there is no engagement whatsoever between healthcare workers um, and health officials, really. Um, contact tracing across the border has been somewhat lackluster. That was admitted by HSE chief Paul Reid. Um, and it's kind of been bolstered by the informal contacts that, contacts that happen between um, contact tracers who, you know, talk to one another and are used to engaging with each other uh, about other um, other diseases before COVID was even um, known. About. Have things somewhat improved, Dominic, because we've had the example of Derry Straban and Donegal? I think from what I've seen, um, the conversation is being had. There's a growing awareness that arguably maybe should have been there before, but a growing awareness that this is something that needs to be considered. And you have that remarkable spectacle of, again, um, Ronan Glynn, the acting chief medical officer and his counterpart in Northern Ireland, Michael McBride, um, telling people who in Tyrone, Derry and Fermanagh not to cross um, the border um, and a bid to sort of contain the spread of the virus. And you have seen in recent days, the Irish government taking a much deeper interest in the situation in the north. And obviously there are communications between political leaders in Dublin and political leaders in Belfast. But when it comes to concrete measures and maybe a more developed strategy that goes beyond the memorandum signed at the start of the crisis, there doesn't seem to be much um, willingness or scope to do that or to develop the relationship further um, or go as far even as an all-Ireland strategy to deal with the virus. Yeah, let's go back to the start there, just to kind of track Northern Ireland's relationship with COVID. When did it have its first case and how different has the trajectory been there compared to what we've seen in the Republic of Ireland? So the first case in Northern Ireland was on the 27th of February, which was two days before the Republic had its first case. And crucially, um, Northern Ireland has a very much under-resourced health system, very similar to that um, in the South in terms of people had worries about its fragility, how able it would be to cope with the surge in COVID-19 cases. And there were some quite severe warnings um, from the Northern Ireland Executive 
at the start of the pandemic, you know, um, Arlene Foster warned that the death toll um, from COVID-19 could be similar to that of people killed in the Troubles, which would be around 3,600 people. Now, thankfully, um, the death toll remained much lower at 587 at the last count. And in fact, Northern Ireland did quite well, even compared to the rest of the UK. It had the lowest number of um, excess deaths across the UK. Um, and that's been quite a remarkable achievement. We've got to remember that the Northern Ireland executive was only restored in January. Um, and people were concerned over whether this somewhat rickety, um, divided parish-area arrangement could cope with a challenge on the scale of COVID-19. But it, um, it did do quite well. Um, now, there were concerns at the start, quite real concerns, about testing capacity, uh, which was lower than in the South. Um, there was also, again, those questions of, do we align with um, the South, like Sinn Féin wanted, or do we follow what the UK is doing, like the DUP supported? So there were familiar Northern Ireland rows, but in a new COVID-19 context. But leaving those kind of rows and difficulties aside for a second, the situation was handled quite well and probably exceeded most people's expectations, thankfully. Um, there was, you know, some quite glowing articles in the international um, press, really, about how well Northern Ireland had coped. I think there was an extra interest given the, the famously divided um, relationship between different parties. So people were quite content, quite happy. That seems to have changed now in the last month. Yeah, so back when they were doing well, what were the restrictions? Did they end up uh, being quite similar to Ireland with stay-at-home orders? Um and when did they get lifted? What was, uh, I guess, what were their lockdowns like? So I suppose in the context of the wider UK, there was a quite a slow response to locking down. Do you remember the criticism that Boris Johnson got for not locking down the country um, quickly in response to the virus? And there was a quite a major divide in Northern Ireland over what to do and who to follow. So Sinn Féin wanted schools to close quite early. Um, the DUP opposed that measure, wanting to align with the UK. Schools um, and colleges closed on the 23rd of March, which was over a week after schools in the Republic had closed. Remember that famous um, address from Washington from teacher Cleo Varadkar. Um, though again, in a kind of haphazard way, some schools had closed before that date, some hadn't. There was a bit of confusion about what schools should actually do. Um, then it was on the 24th of March that Boris Johnson announced um, that the entirety of the UK should stay at home. Basically, we got to that stage where there was a full lockdown and Northern Ireland followed that approach. Again, there were some, there were some sort of differences. Um, there were questions over whether off-licenses, for instance, should be open or not. An executive had to reverse course after actually closing them. Um, and then, the main, but quickly, I think the differences Kind of dissipated a bit and um, now again there's very different schemes to support people there was no pandemic unemployment payment here instead people relied on universal credit where they were furloughed which is the uk scheme for keeping workers attached to businesses while on part of their salary um but the lockdown after that kind of maybe sluggish start was quite similar to that um in the south one of the major differences i suppose was actually on testing yeah how did the testing uh, regimes compare now and are they working in Northern Ireland? So at the start of the crisis, testing capacity was quite low in Northern Ireland. There were 
you know, widely covered concerns about the lack of process facilities and the speed, and there was plenty of missed targets. By early April, um, there were a lot of concerns that the target of 1,100 tests a day was not being reached. And tests were, you know, very much um, kind of reserved for people who were frontline workers, the most vulnerable, people in hospital, and people did complain that it was very difficult to get a test. And if you looked at, uh, if you looked at some of the figures um, for testing in Northern Ireland at the start of the crisis, they were extremely low. Very few people were actually getting tested. Now, it has been improved. It's been ramped up quite a lot. But obviously, there's been concern over the last few weeks about whether it can cope with the extraordinary rise in cases. Um, you might have heard in recent weeks rows over some people in the north who were offered tests, you know, miles and miles away, or even in Scotland, um, people were told, oh, you can go and test there. So there were some major concerns about the online testing system and whether it was fit for purpose. Um, but the Northern Ireland uh, test and trace system has seemed to cope better than that in um, England, where it's widely been said that the system has fallen apart. So Northern Ireland, again, is seems to have a more robust infrastructure for this um, compared to other parts of the UK, but there are concerns about whether it can cope um, in the weeks to come. What is interesting is, I suppose, how Northern Ireland has diverged in some respects from, um, from the government in London. Um, like Scotland and Wales, they kind of rejected Boris Johnson's uh, much marked stay alert slogan, if you remember that. Um, and they also then sort of had a different roadmap, a different speed when it came to reopen. So there has been some difference. And I think that maybe is, that's something to be said for how it is sort of accidentally on purpose aligned with the South, which is kind of ironed out some of the differences and the difficulties we saw at the start of the crisis. Yeah, um, I guess you talked about the executive, um, the power sharing executive doing quite well at the start, but there have been rows since and a lot of them centered on the Bobby Story funeral. Um, what was the fallout from that and has that dissipated now? So to remind people um, of the Bobby Story scandal, which may be comparable to Golfgate or the Dominic Cummings row um, in the UK, it was a funeral of the veteran Republican. Um, it became a major flashpoint. Um, the funeral saw huge crowds um, gathering in Belfast the funeral. This included Michelle O'Neill, Mary Lou McDonald, Jerry Adams, and other uh, leading figures in Sinn Féin. At the time, um, like in the South, there were clear restrictions on who could attend funerals, um, restrictions that caused a lot of pain and hurt to many people. At the time, um, lockdown restrictions stated that a maximum of 30 people were allowed to gather together outdoors. The outdoor sort of funeral cortege um, did seem to exceed that number. Um, and the row really was um, huge. There were calls for Michelle O'Neill to resign and it created a major crisis in the executive at a crucial uh, moment in the pandemic. Um, and the the uh, Northern Ireland executive did have regular press briefings in a similar way to the UK government, in a sort of similar way to the Neffet briefings in the South. Um, but it took two months after the row for Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill to appear together they only they stopped them for a long time um, as a signal really of how bad the breach was between them and the briefings only resumed when things began to worsen but also of course when Michelle O'Neill um, apologized or acknowledged the public health messaging had been undermined by her actions at the funeral. And so is, are things looking more smooth now when obviously you've been watching the press conferences is it looking like it 
can get back on track even with these kind of numbers, you know, 900 a day? Yeah, so it's interesting to compare now to um, how things were at the at the start of, of the crisis, because there were some sniping um, between different parties. I mean, Michelle O'Neill, um, you know, said publicly that the testing testing system was not fit for purpose, really, at the start of the crisis, which was a, you know, a direct attack, really, on her executive colleague, Robin Swan, who, of course, is from the Ulster Unionist Party. And that's one of the strange things about Northern Ireland, when there is no real opposition all the parties are in together so the only opposition sometimes comes from the parties that are represented in the northern ireland executive so it was a very strange situation to kind of witness especially when dealing with a pandemic but relations seem to have improved there is much less of that sort of public um public uh rouse and bobby's story anger seems to have dissipated at least in public uh, michelle o'neill and arlene foster seem to have a much better relationship um, when sort of appearing together and talking together. Um, I don't know, I can't say for certain whether it's been fully restored. Relations did seem to be quite good before the Bobby story um, crisis. You know, they, they were appearing together on, you know, um, UK podcasts, talking about how to handle the crisis. It was very, um, quite inspiring, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but I don't know how fully the relationship has been mended, but the executive does seem to be functioning in a, um, in a more normal way, again, which is, you know, very, given the important um, decisions that need to be reached um, in the coming days, that's probably a good thing. I'm, I'm struck by that uh, little fact there about someone in, in Northern Ireland getting a test uh, for Scotland. And obviously there's been no land bridge built yet, but there, Brexit has kind of started much bigger conversations that we would have expected in 2020 about um, Northern Ireland, a united Ireland, the the future for, for Northern Ireland. Is coronavirus and COVID-19 um, expediting those conversations even further or is it too early to tell? It's probably too early to tell like most things to do with um, Brexit and United Ireland and these kind of discussions there is a bit of uncertainty. Um, now it is it is clear from again that memorandum, memorandum that was signed at the start there was acknowledgement that cross-border relations needed to be utilised um, to cope with the pandemic. Of course, when the program for government in the South was published, it made reference to the COVID-19 pandemic and it referenced um, how the the shared island unit um, would be useful in trying to um, create links between health systems that would help tackle um, the virus. So there were some kind of fresh links developed. And of course, some people in Sinn Féin did point out um, that an all-island response was needed um, now, some people have been a little bit more sceptical about that and accused Sinn Féin of, of opportunism. Um, but I think everyone would agree that some kind of cross-border relationship is needed. Um, now, it does come at, as you say, at an interesting time when we thought Brexit would be the context we're having these conversations. And of course, Brexit um, is going to come to a crunch point in the next few weeks. And of course, is also adding to questions about the role of the border and the role of and the place of Northern Ireland in the UK. But I think the pandemic has definitely added strain to the um, to the Belfast-London relationship, especially when the Northern Ireland Executive decided to diverge from um, Boris Johnson's advice. It did seem to indicate a break and a split um, that maybe does show the, the fraying relationships and in some ways the, the reliance, at least in some respects, that Northern Ireland um, has on its relationships with Dublin for dealing with these kind of crisis situations. 
Uh, I'm just going to give a plug to to your piece that on the shared island unit that you mentioned there. That'll be on the journal in the coming days. Uh, Dominic, thanks so much for explaining all of that to us. And obviously, we'll be keeping a really close eye on what happens in Northern Ireland in the, the coming days and weeks and whether we're going to see a circuit breaker together or not. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Dominic for his work on this episode. If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few months for you to support our journalism. It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fell drastically during the pandemic. But we are and want to keep providing you with accessible, valuable journalism. Loads of you felt it is important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast and have contributed. A lot of you asked if there was a way you could give more regularly. We now have options for you to become a regular contributor. And if this is something you'd like to do, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.